And there are two things I want to ask you about. Okay. Sure. <laughs> sure. You're on the hot seat right now. Um, One is how do you feel about... I don't know if you saw... I mean, we kind of all knew this was coming. I don't know if you saw the, like, bourgeois press or whatever basically coming out and being, like, um, 1.5 degree warming. We're going to get it probably before 2027. I saw that and just immediately was just like, I don't know. We've talked about this on the show before. It's like, we all know what's coming. We all know to a certain extent what's coming and how stressful it's all going to be. But you being confronted by that and like for, you know, you very rarely get front page of like big bourgeois presses like BBC being like, it's happening, climate change. It's absolutely happening. It's always swept under the rug, right? So I don't know. I felt like there was like two days after I saw that where I was just like, oh, oh I see. You feel like we've reached a real tipping point in uh, the, the sort of uh, media portrayal of these things at the, when you get to the point where they're trying to soften the blow of like, there's yeah. just nothing to be done and it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it went from like, hey, you know, there's still a chance we might not get 1.5 degree warming when meanwhile we read like Fossil Capital and he's like, we're going to get four degrees by like, you know, X date. But just seeing them say it, and I guess part of it has to do with like, the shift from El Nino to La Nina or whatever. Hopefully I have that the right way around. But still, just like, I don't know. that I saw that and I was just like, oh, fuck. I was hoping this would be next generation's what? problem. I have, to, I have to, yeah, that's that's the terrifying thing, isn't it? Actually, it's just happening now. I mean, it's yeah. always been happening now, but like the impacts are not even going to bite at the end of our lives, but we are going to, we're going to live through the period of time where this is like beginning to impact. I have to confess, I don't know anything about this because, um, I barely watch the news or read the news or nice. keep up with anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I feel like I had something else to say, but I don't know what it is. It's not good. Yeah. Yeah, obviously <laughs> obviously, it's not great. Oh, no, all it, all it was was like I had this strange moment. I, I guess I was watching some piece of TV from like 15 years ago or something. Um, and it made reference to the... Uh, uh, yeah, anyway, I think it was... Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I think it was a clip from My Name is Earl. But anyway, that's... Okay. Um, and uh, about him discovering that climate change is a thing and then um, starting to recycle or whatever. And all oh, it made me good. realize was like, here is a cultural article from, what, 18 years ago? And, yeah. um, and I suppose we've just been... It's just been around as common knowledge for that length of time. Like, I was remembering I made, like, a really amateur documentary about climate change for my like gcse media or a level media studies or something this is that was just a couple of years ago though what in like 2000 what the 2000 and- <laughs> <laughs> cheers jack that's very kind <laughs> 2006 or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah anyway i mean i you know i don't know what to say that wouldn't be cliche i suppose in the sense of like yeah yeah we've known about it forever and nothing's yeah. happened and you're you're and i guess i guess it's interesting i'd be curious to know what the tone of the announcement was was it like research now shows that blah 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 blah, or was it like i guess or what presumably what it wasn't was oh my god here is a catastrophic failure of all human ability to coordinate and plan and um stave off catastrophe kind of thing or was it reported as a kind of like matter of fact okay this is science and this is the thing and this yeah. is the news and there you go we've given you the it, news yeah it's, it's, it's about something else. yeah it, it's being treated as completely inevitable at this point right yeah but that's the thing that's that's tripping me up so much is it's like the dissonance between here are these governing bodies, you know, these intergovernmental uh, international bodies that are going to get together and solve it for all of us. And we're going to try and keep it to 1.5 and, you know, trust in all of these people. And you like take a closer look at all of these bodies and it's like 90% fucking oil executives just showing up for like a free weekend to make sure nothing actually happens. Mm. The dissonance between like that kind of trust that bourgeois pre- trust obviously lies that the bourgeois press like has versus them just coming out now all of a sudden and being like, oh shit, we actually have to say something because this is happening much sooner than we think. Like it's going to happen by 2027. That's fuck. It's 2023. You know what I mean? That's so goddamn insane. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, how are they going to be able to keep this up? Like uh-huh. when, the, when shit just keeps getting more and more insane. I don't know. Yeah. Like it's, some, like it's some kind of botched PR media, um, plan you know like like to, to sell the they've sort of like fallen behind in their plan to sell uh global warming to us because yeah. i don't know events have sped up ahead of them or something 
yeah yeah it's just the typical liberal bullshit now if it's gone from like you know i mean this is like the conservative playbook though too like in america republicans i like i remember when they pivoted from global warming isn't real you're just a tree hugger to okay it's happening but there's nothing we can do about it (laughs) and now it's just happening to the liberals it's just like fucking yeah well I i was just thinking that like thinking about all the bloviating that went on about donald trump pulling america out of the paris climate accords yeah exactly. and now like like what the hell did it matter you know yeah. <laughs> whether they stayed in or left although i guess there is the flip side of that which is this is the inevitable result of donald trump pulling america out of the paris climate accords that we don't limit that we don't keep warming below 1.5 but i would wager that it didn't matter either way yeah yeah of course not i mean yeah i don't know what are you gonna do I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna forget that you just mentioned you were just watching clips from My Name Is Earl. By the way, I'm not gonna. I didn't let that one. Didn't let that one get away. <laughs> it's even worse than that. Actually, I was watching a really long form, uh, like video essay <laughs> about the, the My Name Is Earl. I don't know. I don't know. You know, this is what I do when I'm not watching the news. I just yeah. see what I don't watch YouTube the news. <laughs> Oh yeah, if I say something like I don't watch the news, it's not because I'm I'm engaged in some more intelligent academic pursuit, <laughs> right? It's just you know my attention span has lessened to the point where I'm watching a, <laughs> watching a, an hour and a half long audio s video essay in five minute chunks every time it re recommends me the same video. Exactly. Yeah. That exactly. Mm. Having never watched my name is Earl and never going to have well, I probably, <laughs> okay, I was gonna I probably ask, watched I was gonna some I probably watched a few episodes, but not really knowing what it is. That show um, was alien to me as an American. I can only imagine what it was like as a British person being <laughs> like, wow, is this America? Real America. There it is. <laughs> I mean maybe it did quite a lot. I mean maybe we maybe like the world outside of the United States and Great Britain in particular was the perfect audience for that show because it probably just confirmed everybody's biases against yeah, yeah, sort yeah, of general general British anti-Americanism kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, look, yeah, look at all these sort of like hick hillbillies kind of thing. I mean, it's fair. I'll yeah. take it. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention, Dan, I know you don't watch the news as we mentioned. <laughs> did you did you see how Ron DeSantis is launching his presidential campaign campaign officially? <laughs> Look at your face. Was, <laughs> I didn't. Was it was it um by coming down an elevator in Trump Tower? I'll be <laughs> No, I wish. <laughs> Wearing the biggest jeans possible. Um no, he's doing it with Elon Musk, an event with Elon Musk. <laughs> Which is just like, oh my God. I was talking to some liberals about this and they were just like, doesn't Elon Musk know who supports him? And I was just like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Who who does support Elon Musk in these? I don't know. I guess like West Coast elite liberals who drive Teslas. You know what I mean? But like, I don't think, I don't know. So we're supposed to sympathize with like elite liberals disappointment in elon musk yeah exactly yeah yeah and hold their yeah, hands through river, they realize. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah actually there's a body of people i care less about <laughs> I, can't think yeah. of <laughs> uh, dear. I don't know that i just i just wonder about that because i remember like when i was younger i've mentioned this on the show before but like the first socialist socialist book that i got was i thought it was a history of uh, the Roman Empire told from the perspective of the quote unquote barbarians, but it wound up being a bunch of essays Aster- by Mike Davis on they made me a socialist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was in praise of barbarians. And in it, he basically just says, you know, people, socialists often tie themselves in knots trying to understand like why certain candidates do certain things you know, presidential candidates generally. And he was like, you know, you can do a lot worse when you're trying to do research on this stuff than literally just following the money. And I'll admit, I was thrown for a bit of a curveball when I was like, oh, you know, who who are going to be the Republican donors who support Trump? Who are going to be the Republican donors who support DeSantis? And I was like, I woke up to a news alert that was like Elon Musk. And I was like, I have no <laughs> yeah. idea what's going on. <laughs> well, great, 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 great. Mm. Um, Yes. Ron DeSantis and Elon Musk and 1.5 degrees of warming. Yeah, good times. Things are going well. You know what is? Have you seen what his tagline is? It's "Make America Florida." <laughs> it's the lamest thing on the planet. It's like, yeah. dude, you're copying I mean, maybe, Trump in a lamer way. Like, maybe maybe 1.5 degrees of warming is a good way to make America Florida. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
like what a what a fucking shit show oh my god okay well should we talk about things dan that will not stress us out at all and should we wait into things that aren't controversial at all last yeah. week to should you just intro this last week we attracted i think every left com on twitter which i thought was awesome to okay. listening to our episode about uh why Kurlikowski was adolf hitler more palmatic excellent I came away with it as I always do when we read Lefcom stuff is just being like, I'm an ultra now. This is it. I'm just an ultra now. Um, explain to us what we're reading this week, Dan, and uh, why you picked it. Um, so, yeah, I read, well, we read, but it, through my reading of Paul Matic last week, I was like, God, I really enjoyed reading this. And I, for some reason, really wanted to wade back into that period of history. I don't know why it was, whether it's escapism or maybe it's just simpler or maybe I'm. Um, don't want to concern myself with anything that actually seems important. <laughs> um, but yes, I wanted to carry on reading that period of history. And you perhaps um, suggested to me that you were interested in this period of time after the Russian Revolution, when Lenin was leader of the Russian Communist Party, but also sort of like um, had his primary influence in, or when Russian communism um was having a well lenin Le, lenin's uh leadership of the communist party in russia was having a significant influence on the development of world communism in one of these sort of revolutionary moments not to put words in your mouth um, <laughs> jack you're telling me about how you were a leninist <laughs> um and i um yeah, I remembered reading back, I remembered reading Mike McNair, right? And that sort of discussion of the um, period of the first few congresses of the Third International, uh, the Communist International, the Comintern, and sort of his portrayal of how they were quite pivotal in the development of the subsequent like centuries worth of um, political organization that's been done by Marxist parties. And basically what I was doing was as you do when you want to start researching something. I was reading Wikipedia and I realized that lots of the references for the article on Wikipedia on the 21 conditions for membership of the Communist International made liberal reference to John Riddell and um, his, who is um, part of a project or has been part of a project to publish as much as possible, so I guess, um, translate and publish as much of the materials that exist from the sort of first-hand documentary materials that exist from the history of the first four congresses of the Communist International, which were the ones that um, happened whilst Lenin was still alive. Um, obviously, I wasn't going to find those books or read them um, <laughs> as... Uh, I'm sort of poorly organized and um, uh, I'm unwilling to commit my time to um, studious academic research, as we've already <laughs> discovered with my discussion, <laughs> not watching the news and watching YouTube. Uh, and then discovered that John Riddell had a very comprehensive blog on which there were a great many interesting articles. And um, I suggested that maybe we would read two, um, two articles or an article in two halves. Um, the title of which I can't remember. Is it Party, Party organization, organization in Lenin's Comintern? Yeah. 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 How did you feel about that recommendation? I, um, I okay, here's how, here's, I was a bit well, of a... Not even a recommendation, I was just sort of groping the dark for something that might be interesting <laughs> to read. And I thought, I, this, seems I, like, this seems like a knowledgeable guy who, uh, if he is um, partisan in his writing, will at least be obvious and clear in his partisanness and, mm. you know, what. I mean, it's the guy who's organizing like all of the papers from the Comintern, right? So it's yeah, like, you, like, like uh, this guy knows guy. what he's talking about. Yeah. You'd hope. Um, <clears throat> I went from being like, you recommended this, and I was like, oh, cool, yeah, let's get into it. Let's like, you know, we've read Palmatic a couple times. We've read, you know, a lot of the criticisms of Leninism and just of the kind of like old workers' movement, right? Um, and I was like, let's let's really get into it because really, what this is is trying to talk about the phrase. Uh, democratic centralism right mm -hmm. and trying to suss out what it is that that actually means and that's very pertinent now because there are a lot of different you know lefty organizations trying to do democratic centralism or whatever we've talked about it a bit before when we did mcnair 
before you into that, I was like, okay, cool, let's read it. And then I started reading and I was like, oh, fuck, I don't, do I really want to go and just read what Lenin said about all of this stuff? I was like, I'm coming off my palmatic high. I really can't, couldn't give less of a fuck about what Lenin said about democratic centralism. And then honestly, like having read it, I'm pretty stoked to talk about it because, well, we'll get into the many criticisms that you can have about all of this stuff, of which there are many. But what I will say is that Lenin himself seems like he was at least saying a, a lot of the right things about democratic centralism when it comes to how you organize a socialist project, period, and then how you organize a socialist project on the scale of literally the communist international. You know what I mean? Like, how the fuck do you do that? How do you do that in 1919 in the Soviet Union? Like... Yeah, it, it's he was saying a lot of the correct things that I kind of think of when I think about trying to think about organization of socialist stuff from a system theory perspective. Um, and I think I was kind of surprised as well about how realistic he was. Um, John Riddell seems like he does have some ideological predilections about all of this stuff. He stands democratic centralism, we can say. Um, but all in all, as kind of like a historic document and a study of history, these essays are really, really short. I think I recommend everybody read them. Like, I would say, especially if you're not a Leninist, um, because I don't know, it's just important to really understand what they were trying to do. And I've brought up the quote of Rosa Luxemburg before, where she was like kind of arguing about this idea of centralism in the workers' movement. And she said, you know, I understand what Lenin was trying to do, but the, you know, things get kind of sketchy when we turn the vice of what Lenin had to do by virtue of being in Russia and trying to organize into a virtue. And um, perhaps that what that is what a lot of people are attempting to do now, but perhaps not, as I think we'll get to. So I was pleasantly surprised, I think. Um, yeah, good. I'm glad. Just <laughs> 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 down, a, down a, a blind alley. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. Um, I think I went through a strange transformation as I was reading. Initially, I was <laughs> reading the idea of democratic centralism and recognizing its sort of wildly or potentially contradictory nature and was imagining whether I was sort of wondering whether it wasn't just some kind of fudge you know and it was just like like a really mythical thing that was just covering for actually justifying sort of dictatorial or um sort of like heavy-handed approach to party organization which was actually emphasized the centralism and didn't and sort of like tacked on a bit of democracy um, as I read through the articles, I came more to recognize the value of the term. I'm really interested that you thought that it paired perhaps well with at least some of your thinking around the viable systems model. I know you think about that a lot bit, bit more than I do. So, um, it'd be interesting to hear how you think it compares. Cause I was, I was looking, I was wondering whether it didn't contradict heavily or maybe, um, the, the notion could do with some enriching through a synthesis of it and um some of the principles of um sort of viable systems model organizing of organizations but maybe we'll get onto that in a bit um yeah i think you're right that it what it, it does have contemporary relevance because there are a lot of parties that um small marxist parties that describe <laughs> themselves as having a sort of democratic centralist form of organization um What's really interesting about it is actually coming back to this fact that John Riddell is like a compiler of first-hand document, documentary evidence. Um, these two essays, though very short, are full of um, references to um, what all of the important parties were saying, um, what various, um, what the Communist International or the various party member parties of the Communist International were doing and saying at the time. Um, which is really vital because it's possible for Marxist parties of today or academics or whoever to say certain things about what they mean by democratic centralism. But what Riddell's doing here is going back to the primary evidence or the primary source material and saying, well, no, these things that we think were important now weren't actually particularly important to these debates. And actually what they were trying to do was X, Y, and Z thing. Um, and if you ever wanted a reminder of how important it is to do contemporary politics, but also think about historic, historical political movements. It's vital to do that in 
with specific reference to the context, what they were trying to achieve at the time, what historical moments they were operating under, and also to imagine whatever historical figure, be it in this case Lenin or some other significant member of the Communist International, imagine them operating in a particular time, in a particular place, and saying certain things that met certain needs um, of the movement at that point, I suppose. Yeah, and I I, I think all socialists, I, I mean, I'm not even going to say all socialists, everyone left of social democrats, I think this is a period of time that we just like, it's almost impossible to think about because it's it's like almost like dreamlike. It's like you're telling me there was a time where in this country that had a successful communist revolution, there was an international committee with people from Mexico, fucking Japan, all of the different countries in Europe, all over the world, America, the Wobblies, everybody got together for the sole purpose of doing an international communist revolution. That's like so heroic to try and think about. And so it, you know, obviously it gets mythologized by like everybody, right? Like if you're a Leninist, you're going to look back and be like, ah, you know, the dream that never was. Or if you're like, I don't know, an anarchist, you're going to be like, that was fucked from the start, right? So it's, it's really important, I think, to like try and understand from the beginning, like go back to the primary sources and see what was actually really happening. Fucking goddamn it. Hang on, there's a siren going by. All right, there's an ambulance. I'll, I'll, I'll go. We'll, we'll let it go. <laughs> we'll let it go. <laughs> Um, but I mean, you know, going back and he, he does do a pretty excellent job here of kind of explaining where this term came from and how it changed over time. And I think that was the most important thing. So I think maybe we try and go through and do like a little bit of the history and do a little bit of the hard kind of like how this changed over time and stuff and, all you know, blah, 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 blah. And then we can kind of get into what we think about it. But like, I was kind of surprised to learn that he basically said prior to the Communist International, Lenin didn't really use the term democratic centralism a whole lot in his thinking, maybe every now and then. Um, and what we think of when we think of democratic centralism almost entirely comes from the common term period, specifically under Lenin's guidance. Um, and Lenin, you know, he's like arch politician, like maybe one of the greatest politicians of all time. So he's constantly doing the bending the stick thing where it's like, okay, now we need a little bit more autonomy. Okay, now we need a little bit more centralism. Maybe more than that, circumstances just kind of decided for them when they had more autonomy because they just couldn't be super centralized. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in it. And he comes out and says, doesn't he, that like there's no real connection between his early use of the term and the actual use in the common turn. And it seems like he's really defending the democratic centralism of the common turn. Yeah, it's funny that I, um, yeah, so he's making quite a lot of use of the work of Lars Lee here as well. And Lee has this definition of like, uh, democratic centralism where democratic is in like in capital letters like the real emphasis is on the democratic um, and he sort of likens that to the Lenin of 1905 to 1908 kind of thing the period of time around the writing of what is to be done and the um, the brief period after the Russian rev the, the 1905 revolution where there is some democratic freedom in Russia um, and then he sort of says that there are multiple times in Lenin's writing between that period and the post-1917 revolutionary period, where you would have thought Lenin might have made some use of the phrase democratic centralism if it was of significant importance to him. And he just doesn't in these sort of essays or letters or whatever. And then it's only later on that he starts using democratic centralism again, this time with in Lars Lee's writing with centralism in capital letters and there being no real correspondence between the two of those. And one of the things that sort of soured me a bit toward Lenin in this was that um, Riddell quotes Lenin quite explicitly as saying, the reason why we want to use the phrase democratic centralism in this context was kind of because we now have state power and um, we ought to have a centralist party to ensure the necessary discipline to successfully exercise state power. And that's why there was this sort of like heavy emphasis on centralism in that context, um, which I felt so almost the opposite to. I was like, if you have a discrete political party that's trying to win over the support of a, a wider populace in a country, particularly under conditions of um, limited democratic freedoms and state repression as was the case in many parts of Europe particularly in in, in uh, Tsarist Russia it's sort of then that you'd sort of feel like you want the the centralist aspect to um, 
be the preeminent one. And then if you're going to actually start to implement some kind of state form, maybe it's at that point when you want to consider, okay, how are we going to have sort of like democratic factions either within a party or different political parties operating under conditions of quote unquote dictatorship of the proletariat, you know? Um, so I was a bit confused or sort of put off by Lenin's uses of that phrase in that in that way. Although I think the point Riddell is kind of making here is that throughout his life, Lenin made limited reference to it. And even if democratic centralism is taken to be an arch tenant of Leninism, as it continues to evolve after his life, really what Leninist parties are making reference to is how the communist internationals used that phrase. Um, and it's important that it's linked to Lenin because Lenin's still alive and having making a contribution. But in some ways, it's also important that Lenin's not so involved in this, right? Lenin's not the great dictator of these whole events, but there is this real um, democratic process underway. And there are representatives coming from all over Europe to come to these big congresses to determine what communist international policy is going to be. Um, and there are really important thought leaders, Clara Zetkin or uh, Zinoviev or Bukharin or something, making equally important contributions to the debate. I don't know if you had this experience, but I went on Wikipedia and I was just like, they have a list of all of the different delegates who were there. <laughs> and if you click on any of them, they just had such insane lives. Like the dude, <laughs> the dude who was the like representative for Japan, who's just insane. He had, I'd never heard of him before. And he, he was like, you know, he was like a Marxist in Japan. And then he came over and went to this and they went back and he tried to organize like a railroad strike or something. And then he got shipped to California and then he went back and he was still a Marxist. It's like, what the fuck? These, this is such a heroic time compared to like what Marxists do now. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I went and hassled DSA liberals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or I made really like piercing critiques of people on Twitter. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I owned them. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let's let's talk a bit about what democratic centralism seems to mean here in these essays and it is it's as vague and as specific as you want it to be basically the common term was attempting to put forward the model of a party that was kind of exactly what it says on the tin where there's a democratic election process and all of the higher ups there's in one of the theses or something like that or in a letter it's quoted as like all of the highest members have to be voted by all of the lowest members all of this stuff but there needs to be disciplined effort to carry out the orders of what they say needs to be done right and you get all this stuff about like i think it was like the guy from bulgaria or something like that was like it must be carried out with an iron will lennon also said something like that um and it basically comes down to a couple of things like you need to have open debate you need to have everybody discussing everything you need to be able to let everybody say what they want to say but then at the end of the day you need to have unity of action which like if you just say it like that it sounds good, right? And if you like, maybe just specifically focus on these couple of years when Lenin was around in the Comintern, you'd go, okay, yeah, you know, like, makes sense to me. Doesn't sound too bad. I'm yeah. shrugging. Yeah, <laughs> the audience can't see Jack shrug. <laughs> Not shrug in an apathetic way, but shrug in a kind of like I don't know. Yeah, isn't that just like obvious? <laughs> or maybe it's not. Maybe it's an I don't know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, this was when I was sort of coming around to the idea that, I mean, it, in, as you say, said in the sort of like vaguest non-committal way, it feels quite obvious, right? Particularly if you're organizing a political party, there needs to be the fullest democratic decision-making and debate when it comes to determining what party policy is going to be. And then if you're going to effectively work as a party, everybody for the most part has to, um, is obliged to then, do their best to implement whatever that democratically determined policy is going to be. Um, yeah. And it, I think it would be way too simple because for a lot of this, I wanted to, I was looking for the point when it just turned into this leads directly to Stalinism, this leads yeah. directly to Stalinism, yeah. you know, but it's like, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I like want to say, Sorry. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no. I, just, I just feel like Riddell's like answer to that would be Stalinism led to Stalinism. Oh, like yeah. Stalin led to Stalinism. I suppose <laughs> so. Yeah. Maybe I mean, that's too I, crude because the first crude. the first book I ever read on this stuff was when I was young. It was probably not too long after I got that Mike Davis book, and I was like, socialism, eh? And I found mm. this book at the same bookstore that was called Three Who Made a Revolution, and it had and it was literally 
the thesis of it was the Russian Revolution was made by three people, Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin. And it's like, you see that put, like, that's an incredibly liberal anti-materialist, like, viewpoint of how that revolution happened. Like, obviously a dog could tell you that, but maybe not, because, like, you see a lot of socialists say it. And, like, I think maybe it might be a cop-out to just say that Stalinism led to this. I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, the function of a system is what it does, and we'll get into that. But I mean, like, I don't know. I don't, like these people were doing their best. It's not like they were like, and then after we get everybody on board, we'll get Stalin in and he'll kill everybody. <laughs> I mean, it's the most stupid thesis ever. Like you only have to read any sensible, any comprehensive history of the period of time between like the build up to the February revolution in Russia in 1917. And then the October takeover of power by the Soviets and by the Bolshevik party to see that it was, the masses were making decisions, the Soviets were making decisions, and most of the time the the Bolshevik party were saying that it wasn't time to do something and then the masses decided to act anyway, or like the yeah. Bolsheviks just didn't see something coming, or like, exactly. the revolution no idea was... what they were doing, what to do. Like <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean it even gets into like how do you even define the Russian Revolution? Because it's like the Russian Revolution to me is like everything up until like I'm not slagging on him, because if I was a Bolshevik, I probably would have been like, fucking do it, take power. But like it feels to me like the Russian Revolution is everything up until the the point when the Bolsheviks took power. And then that was like Lenin's coup. And then from there, it was something else, right? Like the revolution was the working class doing the work of the working class. And then the Bolsheviks were like, hey, maybe we can help out a little bit here. But then also like, you know, like at that point, the Soviets did have like pretty large membership of like they did have large representation of the Bolshevik party. So, you know, I don't want to like slag off the Bolsheviks too hard, but like at the end of the day, the revolution, yeah, we know this. It was the actual working class. If you're a materialist, you believe that's how revolutions yeah. work. I mean, so. I feel like what happened was everybody else of significance absented the political field and just sort of left the Bolsheviks as the only yeah. people that were still going, you know, like everybody yeah. else has just had enough almost. Stick but your guns. Know. Yeah. What... <laughs> Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, so in, in reading some of this, just to go off of that point, he talks, he quotes at length a lot of the 1921 theses on organization where they were kind of mm -hmm. like, okay, here's how your party needs to be organized. Here's how we need to actually do things. And one of them, thesis six is really fascinating, but I found myself a couple of times throughout this essay, just writing how question mark it's mm -hmm. in the margins of all of this. And one of them is when they're defining democratic centralism, it's democratic centralism in a communist party should be a truth synthesis and fusion of centralism and proletarian democracy. It's like, <laughs> wow, thank you so much for that. It's, it's bits of this, it's, it's quotes like that was, that was um, reinforcing my first reaction to this idea of democratic centralism. We're like, is this just some kind of like, mythic use of the idea of dialectics without actually imagining how that synthesis is going to take place or whether even dialectics governs this relationship you know or like i mean the, I, I was a question that i was toying around with in my head was like is this discussion of democratic centralism is all of this just a matter of the questions that we ask ourselves like when about organizing when we deal solely with sex you know what i mean it's like it kind of seems to be yeah because the one thing I found interesting is when we read people like um, McNair and we read this, there's a real focus on the political part of political economy at the expense of the economic part of political economy. And then when we read like the councilists, you know, there's no focus on the politics, really. And, and because that has to do with because of like this influence from people like Grossman and Maddock, where they're kind of thinking like, you know these things are all kind of tied to the economic situation of capitalism. And one of the reasons that you can't tie your lot to unions or to like bourgeois parties and entryism is because they're all tied to the fate of capitalism. It needs to be something outside of it all. Right. So like, I don't know, I don't really know where I'm going with that other than just like, it is interesting to kind of see this focus kind of purely on the political here about organizing. But again, they were doing something that's very different to what we're trying to do now. So. Yeah. And I mean, I think you make a really important point when you bring up the idea of, um the sect right like the people trying to implement or modeling themselves on a democratic centralist uh former party organization nowadays are just sects and they operate as sects and there is a vagueness to these pieces of terminology as you say if you look at that um those conditions those um what they call conditions on party organization theses, theses on party there's, mm -hmm. there's so, the, so a little bit of the history right sort of like there's the 21 conditions of membership of the communist international and it's 
in in several of those that you get this quite significant use of the idea of democratic centralism there's a they say all the parties need to be organized in a democratic centralist way um i think this is condition 12 um and also condition 12 sort of like quotes this idea of at that juncture in history they're operating under what they call an epoch of civil war right and the, one of the reasons why they justify this requirement to organize in this democratic centralist way is sort of coming back to what i was saying before right there are particular specific historical conditions that are happening they think still at this point they think they're on the cusp of some kind of international revolution revolution is going to break out in a whole series of different countries um and so maybe flipping the flipping what i was saying a little bit before about this sort of uncharitable reading of what lenin is saying where the significance of democratic centralism is that you know the requirement to have central control when you're trying to take over a state power and organize it that might apply to what he was talking about in the soviet union but there is a requirement to emphasize that centralism bit under these conditions of the requirement to actually organize internationally in a process of civil war to overthrow the bourgeoisie, which is an international class in and of itself, and the proletarian class needs some kind of international representation. But the point Riddell is kind of making is those 21 conditions on the on membership of the Communist International are kind of counterweighted, counterbalanced by these theses on uh, party organization, which he says comes directly out of an internal debate within the Comintern and within the, the representative parties of the Comintern saying with a degree of unease around what it means to be democratic centralist and a requirement to outline the the democratic aspect of democratic centralism. Um, but as you say, they are somewhat vague and it's unclear how you would apply them but I was sort of like, maybe maybe there's a charitable reading of that where you say, well, this was a shifting political epoch saying it's important that all parties should organize themselves and organize under their own conditions and um, implement the wishes of their sort of the rep the members of that party kind of thing. They that does then allow for a free operation of these political parties under shifting historical conditions. You know, maybe the vagueness is um, because there's a sort of shifting political landscape and they're trying to set up conditions for communist parties to work with that um, historical epoch, I suppose. Yeah. And part of me is just like, there's half of me is like, how seriously can we take this at all because of that? Because it's like, they're talking about organizing a communist international during one of the most violent civil wars the world has ever seen under conditions of colonialism that don't exist on the scale now that they did back then, right? And it's like, I don't know, like, if we're really serious about trying to come to terms with, like, the best organization a party form could take or something like that, or what our organization should really look like. Like, it's like, why would we begin there? You know what I mean? Yeah. I like understand because it's like, well, we need to see what worked and what didn't. And realistically, like what you were saying just then about uh, allowing for a degree of autonomy amongst these um, uh, different like national subsects, right? Like the Communist Party of like France or some bullshit, right? Like that's that's really important. And again, you kind of see hints of like this thing about variety. It's like, well, the Communist International, the guys up top, Zenobia and them, they just do not have the ability to organize every single Communist Party. So when you kind of hear Lenin say like, well, see, they allowed for a degree of autonomy. It's like, because they literally had no other choice. You know what I mean? But that's the interesting thing. It's like, I think they also recognize that. What the fuck was that one paragraph about the Freemason stuff? Did oh, yeah, I, you that <laughs> <laughs> I printed it out and it was like Trotsky made a decision to ban all. And then I like turned the page and it was like Freemasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I just so they were they were sort of like three examples of the ways in which there's a the, the general the, whatever it's called the central committee of the communist international intervened and i think the case riddell was really making was that the central committee or whatever we're going to call it intervened in a relatively few number of cases and its interventions were sort of like uh not pe piecemeal is not the wrong word like some, somewhat even-handed and kind of like 
deliberatory and not sort of like they're not bringing the iron fist down you know they were just fight it was compromise searching right what often in these instances they were brought in to find some kind of compromise and for some reason this 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 inability for the three fractions of the french communist parties to unite into one party to then join the common turn or whatever for some reason that hinged upon a condition that the international had made two years <laughs> earlier that outlawed membership of freemason <laughs> of people being both freemasons and members of communist parties but, that's what made me be like I, this is from yeah. a different time <laughs> but i did not understand i did not understand <laughs> freemasons keep coming up they came up in one of the foner readings eric foner philip foner one of them it was a little bit like oh no maybe it was the um one of the readings we did on american politics i forget what they keep coming up dan that's all i'm saying they keep coming yeah. up <laughs> maybe that's what we should be looking into jack <laughs> yeah that's the real <laughs> next oh, week okay. the real <laughs> next week <laughs> I think it's it's worth it's worth pausing on those two, not the Freemason one. It's worth pausing on that's also just so terminally French, it cracked me up. It's <laughs> worth com commenting on these two spats and the ways in which the examples that he gives and the ways in which the ECCI, I assume that's like the executive committee of the Communist yeah. International, dealt with things. So I'm just gonna read them out real quick. He said that in Italy, the Comintern section was held to have sabotaged a fourth Congress decision to seek fusion with the Italian Socialist Party, long a Comintern supporter, but social democratic in tradition. The ECCI voted to alter the party's national leadership to secure representation within it of the Italians pro-fusion minority. Blah, 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 blah. The decision was the first such ECCI intrusion into national leadership. However, the ECCI did not challenge the majority control of the sections elected majority leadership. And then again, he says in Bulgaria, the Communist Party refused to defend the ruling radical peasant party, which I don't know anything about them. Sounds pretty cool if you ask me. Hopefully it wasn't some like <laughs> genocidal, like horrible party. Um, against an attack by a murderous right-wing military coup, the ECCI report, report criticizing this failing was a stinging blow to the authority of the Bulgarian section's leadership, but the ECCI plenum, plenum, whatever, made no move to alter its composition. So he's kind of using these as examples of the kind of like democratic and autonomous part of democratic centralism, right? So he's saying that like, here's the ways in which the central committee kind of just left things up to everybody else. They made their decisions, but then also they kind of didn't really follow them up. And like, I kind of feel like in, in Mike Duncan's revolutions, one of his theses is when Louis was not assassinated, when he got his head chopped off and when King Charles got his head chopped off, a lot of that had to kind of do with shifting. Um, they say they're going to do one thing, they're going to crack down really hard and then they kind of don't follow it up and they don't. You know what I mean? And I kind of see a little bit of that sneaking in here where it's like, well, you kind of need to either be one or the other. Like you made a decision that was kind of like a big blow to the Bulgarian party's leadership. And then you kind of just didn't really follow it up with anything after that. Like, it's interesting. I don't really know enough specifically about the history, but it is an interesting example in whatever point he's trying to make, whether it's that, see, look, they allowed for autonomy or if it, the point is they allowed for autonomy because they just couldn't do anything else. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting contradiction which I hadn't really thought of, but I think it is fundamentally true, right? You like, is is it the case that they were powerless, or is it the case that they were deliberately taking a strategy that was a fudge, right? It's clearly a fudge. I I don't quite understand mm -hmm. these historical cases, and even in those two short paragraphs explaining them, I didn't get enough to really understand these historical cases. Um, but it seems to be he's making the case that. The history of the Comintern was one of constantly navigating and negotiating this idea of democratic centralism, not ruthlessly enforcing centralism. What I think unites those two cases that you were just explaining in Bulgaria and in Italy um, is that they were both struggles within the party around whether to and how to implement the united front right in bulgaria was it there was this question of whether to defend a sort of like non-proletarian but otherwise anti-capitalist peasant party i suppose who'd taken power or whether they were going to allow them to be cooed i don't know whether it was that simple but something like that or uh, similarly in italy whether to unite with the, the socialist party or not um and there's a sort of interesting discussion to be had around this idea of um, uh, the United Front simply because it seems in Riddell's description, it's it's a case in which the, the executive committee of the Communist International has to intervene multiple times. There's another instance in Norway, which I'll get, which I'll, we can talk about in a minute, where the 
ECC. ECCI, I think. CI, um, <laughs> <laughs> intervenes in actually what works out to be a relatively catastrophic way um, and sort of proves itself to be relatively impotent in its ability to actually broker truces. Um, so there is this instance where the ECCI is intervening mostly to try and enforce um, the United Front <laughs> policy. But at the same time, the way he describes it is the United Front policy is something that actually comes about as a result of the democratic desire and interventions from other um, member parties within the Communist International. Um, and he uses that as one of his core examples of actually how democracy functions um, and how we sort of like, we, <laughs> how the Communist <laughs> International, how the International Communist Movement came out of this period of whatever they call it, um, in the epoch of civil war. Okay, the revolutionary period has subsided, what are we going to do next? Um, and I remember Mike McNair's discussions about this in his book. Um, and I felt like there was a degree to which he was describing it as kind of this sort of like disorganized vacillation, um, which maybe it was, but also it does seem to be representative of a democratic desire. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. It makes me think that like the systems theory stuff, it makes me think, because again, like I said, they say a lot of the right things, right? Like they talk about, you know, all of their theses. It's like, you need to have answerability, inclusivity, working majority, right to be heard, internal debate. Everybody needs to talk, public debate, you know, loyalty, all of this stuff that sounds pretty good. And I would say, if you're actually trying to organize along these lines, go back and look at that stuff because those are the good things that you can actually take from this. But like the idea, it kind of seems laughable in retrospect that your meta system, you know, your systems four and five, that that could just be like one executive committee for the entire planet. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like that yeah. just clearly was not going to happen. Yeah. And I understand, you know, they wanted to have unity of action. And if we're actually going to overthrow the goddamn capitalists in a way like we did in Russia or whatever, like we are going to need this kind of centralism. But this just goes to show this is exactly what Pierre was talking about. You just can't have you can't have a system, a meta system that small for the entire planet. It's just not going to work because they're going to fuck up. They're going to do their best. Like I'm not, you know, we're clearly not saying that they had like evil intentions with this stuff or whatever, but they're clearly going to make mistakes. And those mistakes like kind of ruined <laughs> like some of these parties and like maybe set back socialism for some of these countries by some time, or at least affected its path to socialism or whatever. So, you know, it kind of gets into when there's another quote from Lenin here, which was really, really good. And this was like Lenin's last address to the world movement right before he dies. And this is, you know, kind of, it's so, it's it's a bummer, but it's also kind of funny. Um, what does he say? He says, although prepared to subscribe to every one of the 50 or more points, Lenin said the revolution, the resolution was too Russian and incomprehensible to non-Russian communists. Everything in it is based in the Russian experience. He said, non-Russians will not understand it and they cannot carry it out. The most important thing for all of us, Russian and non-Russian comrades alike, is to take time to study. And that totally just speaks to the variety of what they were trying to do, right? Like, Lenin totally understood this. Lenin wasn't some big bad iron fist guy that was going to try and sort all of this stuff out and drag everybody into communism, you know, all over the world. It's exactly, uh, was it in the Pulmatic reading last week where, or two weeks ago, where he basically quotes Lenin as saying, okay, whatever, Rosa Luxemburg was right. All of this stuff is basically just based in the Russian experience. Lenin understood that, right? And so it is kind of a bummer that like he dies and they go forward with these plans that were so thoroughly developed under like extreme repression in Tsarist Russia that like maybe not gonna work everywhere, you know. Maybe they worked in some places, maybe they would have worked in others, but you know, this was based out of the Russian experience. And again, him being like, take time to study your material circumstances, I think that rings true everywhere, right? That's that's why you get a lot of these parties that are trying to do this, whether in America or whatever, being like, um, what does communism mean in America? It means finishing reconstruction, right? It means doing all of these different things that are specific to our circumstances. But again, democratic centralism thoroughly just came out of like Russia. So, you know. I'm really pleased that you, uh, once again, you did it before and you've once again brought up the idea of <laughs> variety, right? And um, in some ways, that's what the um, description of democratic centralism here is striving after and trying to achieve. But maybe without both the technological infrastructure that's necessary, but also the theoretical infrastructure that's necessary that we could take from um, 
sort of like management cybernetics and the viable systems model. Um, there is a point at the end of the first of these two essays where the final um, paragraph is around the requirement or the suggestion that communist parties ought to be campaigning parties, campaigning organizations. Um, and a lot of that seems to stem almost from the second international era from um, the kind of like almost Kautskyist description of a mass party uh, and the Leninist description of a mass party as well. Um, and it seems like it's that appeal to, okay, you're going to be, you're in a communist party, you're a committed communist, you actually have to be fully committed to this process, you have to be organized, you have to be involved in whatever level you are involved, you should be in working committees, what have you. Um, it's that sort of like unity in action, which seems to be the kind of like intended to be the generative aspect which re, like maintains and vitalizes the democratic core of what they're trying to do but also in cybernetics language it sort of like supplies the variety um that meets the needs of every political condition that they find themselves in and i thought that was quite an it's an it's it's a it's a it's important that he ta he tax that I don't want to say tax that on I'm so important the ends that final essay describing the concepts of democratic centralism with that notion of a campaigning party um, because it prevents it from becoming the sort of like stagnant notion and keeps it as sort of a, a, a live process I suppose I'm, I'm pretty I'm glad you brought that up because I think that that's something that I took from this that was actually quite good and it's specifically around being oriented around specific goals right because I don't know or like burnout is so real for organizing in any fashion right like i'm kind of dealing with quite a bit of it at the moment right now just in terms of like the constant fucking grind of like you're trying to do these things and it's all around you know go 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 100 all the time and while there is part of that while there is like you're signing up to the international you are now a communist revolutionary we'll give you the money to travel here and there and do whatever you need but like you have to dedicate your life to the communist revolution there was also an understanding that within these parties like um they needed to organize themselves around campaigning around specific goals. And they definitely did take that from kind of like Kautskyist stuff, right? And I think that's really important. I think that like, if you just tell people, this is the most important thing of all time, you're, if you, every moment you have to be doing this, if you, if you're not constantly working towards communism, you're a bad person, you're a horrible person. Like, not only is that just not going to work because people are going to get burnt out and do bad jobs of everything they try and do, but it, it just doesn't make sense from like a systems theory perspective, right? Like you need to be, you can't organize everybody for mass pushes 100% of the time, you need to be like, okay, here's what we're going to try and do. We're going to try and fucking, you know, give these homeless people a place to live, or we're going to try and make the buses better, or we're going to try and get this person elected. And you all organize specifically around one goal, and you do a mass push for that, and then things die down, and then you get everything together again, and then you do it again, and you go from there. Like there is this kind of cyclical motion to it, as opposed to just expecting 100% from everybody all the time. And again, there's that dual kind of side of it where like the real communist revolutionaries need to just be doing their shit all the time. But when it comes to the party and motivating the working class, working class people are just going to be motivated around specific issues, right? Like not everybody is like an asshole like us. And it's going to be like communism 100% all of the time. We need to do this. This is all I think about because I'm an asshole. Like people think about, you know, my water's not clean, right? Or people think about like food insecurity or like the hurricane that's coming. And those are the things that you need to kind of grapple with and get that energy and harness it in the right direction because it doesn't exist all the time yeah what i'd like to do is sort of bring it back to something you said before when you invoked the idea of the sect right um because i think it, there's a question then of like what's happening with the use of this per, this terminology now and you you could be motivated to say well okay the problem with contemporary Marxist parties is that they are trying to apply the notion of democratic centralism and it's sort of like there's inherent in this word inherent in this word is the evil of Lenin and his type of organization and like what they've what they're doing is just sort of uh, repeating that model kind of thing so the problem is the notion of democratic centralism but I think Riddell's takeaway from this is that no at this particular time in history when we had like communist parties in most communist or socialist parties in most 
countries in Europe that had tens or hundreds of thousands of members and had an avowed commitment to bringing about the dictatorship of the proletariat, this notion was of use. And one of the points I think he makes in this essay or another one that I read was that um, you would think that this idea of democratic centralism, it, it, as we've sort of just tried to elaborate it, perhaps with all of these sort of like um, notions around democracy and campaigning and variety and a way of um, implementing that core Marxist principle, which says like the working class will be the liberators of themselves and by virtue of that humanity and we have to sort of like trust in and rely on and empower them you could use democratic centralism as an idea that could meet those ends and facilitate those ends and he sort of makes the point that you would have thought the idea of democratic centralism applied now could lead to a create a great a flourishing of like creativity and working out how to properly campaign as a marxist party and how to work with other people that don't disagree with don't necessarily agree with you on all things but you can find some kind of unity with like it would allow for for both of those tendencies would allow for um work between different factions but no what we have actually is a form of democratic centralism that rules most of these marxist parties which actually leads them to have no time for one another to have developed mostly into parties that are all dogmatically attached to one particular thinking to one thinker they're mostly just trying to compete for members between from different parties they're really committed to like beating the other little tiny sect that they split from a long time ago they're not particularly all the disagreements that make up the democratic disagreements within them are all about like petty disagreements within the party rather than things that are actually questions that are coming from an engagement with the working class an engagement which they don't really have so maybe there's a takeaway i think which he's trying to say is that like the problem is the sort of sect form that we live under and the really sort of like degenerated existence of the workers movement in general i guess um and not necessarily just that democratic centralism is a big bad word um <laughs> ruined like, i think mob, i'm I, I think i'm coming away from it thinking that democratic centralism is completely what you want to make of it it's completely yeah. <laughs> in the eye of the beholder you yes, know what i mean yeah. it's like how we treat dialectics it's like that's democratic centralism and so is that yeah and the absolute worst thing to do would be to make a, an, an hour-long podcast debating the significance <laughs> of the term democratic <laughs> yeah. centralism yeah. contemporary <laughs> marxist or communist or socialist political organizing so <laughs> yeah i mean because i don't know i mean to a certain extent you could describe the viable system model as democratic centralism because it's attempting to balance a meta system with operating and maximizing autonomy. What I will say, though, is I think that thinking about it just in terms of democracy and centralism is missing kind of the nuance of that metasystem subsystem relationship, right? And then I think that like, realistically, what you need to be thinking about is how can you just minimize what leadership needs to do? And how can you maximize what operations actually does for all of the reasons we've stated before? And I think the way to do that is to think of this not necessarily as like, two contradictory things, but as a mutually beneficial relationship, right? Like what does the meta system get from operations? It gets less work, right? And what does what does um, the operational subsectors, right? What do they get from having a meta system? Uh, something that can kind of do the research into the environment that they can't necessarily do and see the emergent properties of like the system as a whole, right? So like, again, democratic centralism, I think when I hear people say that, I might just kind of roll my eyes a little bit because it's like, yeah, okay, sure, you and everybody else. Because I don't think there's anybody who's like, I'm a centralist or like, I'm, you know, I, and then every, just saying democracy would mean you're an anarchist, which I respect and is cool. But also like every socialist, I think, could probably to a certain extent call themselves a democratic centralist. So again, yeah, you'd have to be a real asshole to spend an hour on this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think you've, you've pointed out very, very clearly how it does seem under these sort of like cr that crude definition, not that you've just given the sort of general crude <laughs> definition of democratic centralism. It's almost impossible to achieve the sort after synthesis between the two words kind of thing. Um, and under the conditions that they were operating, they didn't seem to get very close to achieving the synthesis. Sure. Both things were happening at once and democratic central. If 
maybe Riddell is right, right? That democratic centralism as existed under Lenin's Comintern wasn't the kind of like iron fist of Moscow coming down on all of these parties and telling them exactly what they could do. Partly because he points out that it's just like there, there isn't the technology to do that, right? Like, how do you even communicate yeah. these, this stuff over that greater distance at that time? Like, it would just be fundamentally impossible as an organizational model, regardless of whether there was desire to do it or not. But that reading of of the democratic centralism of this period is definitely not that dictatorial version of it. Um, that said, they don't seem to actually get very close to achieving the sought-after synthesis between the two. Um, what gets in the way of that, I don't know. Maybe that Stafford Beer was yet to be born. Who knows? Yeah, I definitely got the All feeling the condition, that... the theoretical conditions of cybernetics. Like, let's not, not attach it to one particular word, one just, particular person. Just our God just and like, Savior, Stafford Beer. If only Stafford Beer had met Lenin. Point where, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got the feeling from this, and this is written by like an ex-trot guy, right, who has like his ideological stuff going on, right? But I don't know. I got the feeling that Lenin probably would have been interested in cybernetics, right? Had that been possible? Had he had that available to him? Mm-hmm. But again, like the kind of just crazy, like, well, maybe I shouldn't say crazy, the crazy kind of like worshiping of Lenin isn't what Lenin would have wanted, mm-hmm. you know, because even if you take all of this stuff at face value and be like, they were really trying to do democratic centralism or whatever, Lenin would be like, but don't do what I'm doing. Like, geez, even though, even though we've organized the communist international along these lines, like it's, this is what we did because we had to do it. You know what I mean? So yeah. Again, take the posters of Lenin oh, down off but, of yeah. your wall. Maybe more importantly, who are we to say what Lenin wanted? And furthermore, who cares what Lenin wanted? You know? well, yeah, well, I'm not going to speak to Lenin's per- lived experience. Okay? <laughs> I don't know what he's going through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. but like, what, what do we want? What are we trying to achieve? And what aspects yeah. of what Lenin did aligned with what we're trying to achieve? And right? mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, again, the phrase democratic centralism at this point, I feel like is emptied of kind of meaning. But what I what I will say is that I think that besides the historic element of it, the kind of the importance of reading about this stuff is kind of like, you know, some of the theses make sense. And like all of the stuff about, like I said, about, you know, people need a right to be heard like that. All that stuff is really important. The kind of concrete details of organizing a party. Um around people have the right to be heard. Everybody needs to be heard. You need to set aside time to do that. Don't ban factions. Oh, that's weird. How did that wind up happening? Mm-hmm. All of these different things, right? Like maybe not so much the actual structure of how they were organizing that balance between these so-called contradictory things of democracy and centralism, but like all of those little things, the working majority. And like realistically, you know, if you are in a working class movement or a party or something like that, there is always going to be a certain amount of okay, I don't really disagree with this, but I don't really want to just like go sulk. So, you know, I'll, I'll go along with it, the whole unity of action thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a hard thing to balance. And again, you're just going to have to do it with your own concrete um, situations. So, you know, don't go looking to Lennon for answers because he'd just tell you to fuck off and read a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do the research. Yeah, do the goddamn research. <laughs> well, Dan, as we've been talking... Um, Tina Turner died, which is sad, but also uh, they just had the event, the DeSantis event of, uh, oh. you know, the Elon Musk launching the oh, thing. We, we could have been doing a live react to that, which <laughs> probably would have been far more productive. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would have been productive. Yeah, great. That. <laughs> well, all right. well, I really enjoyed that, Dan. Yeah, and it's been fun dipping our toes back into this period of history because, like I said, it's very heroic and it's very just like you telling me these guys were doing what? Yes, maybe that is the big takeaway. This stuff was happening. Yeah, and it's not just. I mean, maybe that's the most important point of this whole thing. It's like democratic centralism. This piece of terminology was not the invention of Lenin. It was mm. the invention of a sort of like movement in action, a sort of a mass political movement. Um, mm. And however flawed its results were, or even the notion is. Um, this stuff was happening and there yeah. was mass re- mass revolutionary politics. Yeah. And one thing we didn't even mention that actually affected this more than everything we actually discussed about how these people felt about their organization and stuff, the actual material conditions of what was going on, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's almost like the workers' movement is actually tied to, you know, the material conditions of reality and... Yeah, what are you going to do? Such a bummer looking into this stuff and then being like the Comintern was around for a long time and then it was shut down because Stalin didn't want to like upset, you know, 
Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> they replace it with the Communist Forum. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what, though? Ooh, Dan, here's an idea. Has anybody mm. ever thought about this? A fourth a international. international. <laughs> no, wait. They already had a fourth international. What about a fifth international? <laughs> it's time, Jack. It must be time. It's time. We'll get all the podcasters together. <laughs> <laughs> the podcasters international. Yeah. yeah great. <laughs> okay. Well, that was really, really fun. I enjoyed that. One last thing. I wrote something for the Black Lamp, the journal. Go check that out. It's like an introductory thing for food systems, for socialists. Um, it's not very in-depth. There's a lot in there about soil ecology because I like soil ecology, but it's also, you know, just a call for people to take this stuff seriously. So there'll be a link down there for that. Honestly, there'll be a link to the Black Lamp. Just go read their other stuff, their editorial. Very good. And they talk about a lot of this stuff. So um, go check that out. Good stuff. All right. Well, we'll be back, Dan. I'm seeing you this weekend, which will be very nice. Yeah, I'll see you in a few cool. days for the first time wow. since October. Yeah, it's, be so, be it's so weird. I feel, like, I feel like I see you all the time, but also... <laughs> It's strange. I haven't seen you in a long time. So. Yeah, I know. That'd be yeah. nice. It'd be very yeah. good. Yeah, I lost a leg in between when you saw me now. <laughs> okay. So I'll look very different. I'll be hobbled. What are you going to do? Okay. Well, uh, thanks, Dan. I really enjoyed this. And uh, see you soon. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, everybody, for listening. It's been wisdom. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time. Whoa.